Hello and welcome to Renewing Your Mind, a web-based ministry of South Bay Community Church located in Fremont, California. It is our prayer that today's broadcast will be a blessing to you. Let us prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. I've called this message today, Don't Test Him, Trust Him. And it's built on the scripture text that I read to you and our crucial question uh, for the ending of this series. During the winter of 1916 in a frozen Eastern European wasteland, the Imperial Russian and German troops fighting in the Kovno-Vilna region found themselves at the mercy of a pack of hungry super wolves. It was reported that these wolves in question were larger and stronger than any other such animal the Germans or Russians had ever seen. When all attempts at keeping the wolves at bay, including grenades, poison, machine guns, failed, the Russians and Germans were given permission by their commanding officers to sign a truce and that all fighting between the enemy would cease. Instead of killing each other, the two sides joined together and launched a German-Russian wolf hunt. Working arm in arm, with guys they had just tried to kill. They destroyed together hundreds of wolves, and the few that remained ran from the area as fast as their four legs would let them run. Proving once again that when a common unstoppable enemy arrives on the scene even those who hate each other will come together to remove it this is the scenario in which our text is built chapter 13 or verse 13 of chapter 12 says later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Enemies like the Russians and Germans coming together to get rid of a common threat. Enemies like the Pharisees and Herodians come together to get rid of Jesus. We first should ask, who was the they? Who was the they who had enough power to put the enemies or these two enemies together 
to address Jesus. You have to go back a little bit in Mark into the previous chapter. In verse 27 of that chapter, Mark describes the power that sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. The verse says, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. This is the power of the Jewish community. The chief priest was the one who stood next to the monarch in influence and dignity. The teachers of the law were the scribes, the professional students of the law, the actual teachers of the people. And the elders was the council, the ones who took an active part working with leadership in the management of public affairs. It was they who sent the Herodians, members of the aristocratic Jews, the ones who, who sided with Herod in overseeing the people in support of the Roman government. A political party, the Herodians were, who, who joined the religious authorities in opposing Jesus. And then the Pharisees, the, the ones who had supreme influence among the people, the ones who were the major influencers in the Sanhedrin. They, along with the Herodians and the Sadducees, held the reins of government under Roman oppression and controlled the synagogues and exercised great control over the general population. Those Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Herodians, the political side, both coming together, politics and religion, to get rid of Jesus. The text says in verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was a great question. It was a fabulous question if you're trying to trap somebody in a way in which there is no out. They've tried to set Jesus up by giving him some cheap flattery. The question was designed to place Jesus in a religious and a political dilemma. It is said that it was lawful, if he said it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, then his influence with the populace would have been taken away from him because the people would then have regarded him as a traitor and a coward which then would have made it difficult for him to share the gospel. If he said it was not lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, then they could report him to the Romans, and the Romans would have arrested him as a revolutionary. And I'm sure that they thought that they had Jesus in a trap from which there was no escape. 
If he said yes, he was doomed. If he said no, he was doomed. And they felt that they had really set him up for failure. But before Jesus answers the question, he offers one of his own, which is our crucial question for today. It's in verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy and said, why put me to the test? Now, we've already been saying Sunday after Sunday that Jesus didn't ask questions for answers. He asked questions in order to make the questioner think. Why put me to the test? Jesus knew instantly that this was not a sincere question that was even seeking an answer. He knew that this was an attempt to get him to respond contrary to his interests or intentions. They used cheap flattery to set him up in their attempt to manipulate him. In fact, that's a principle that you might want to remember. When people use cheap flattery, chances are they're setting you up to manipulate you in some way. And Jesus recognized precisely What was taking place? Attempts to manipulate God is what God views as testing him. Have you ever tried to manipulate God? If you say, no, I haven't, let me mess with that for a minute. If you've ever said to God, if you do this, I will do that. That's manipulation. If you've ever said to God when the lottery had gotten to incredible numbers, Lord, if you let me win, I will give more than 10%. I will give half back to the church and the kingdom of God. That's an attempt to manipulate God. An early example of testing God is seen in the book of Exodus. It's in chapter 17. And I want to read these verses because it it so helps to illustrate the point. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Key phrase, traveling place to place as the Lord commanded. They they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Catch that. Lord led them. No water. People turn on Moses. Moses says, I'm not your problem. I didn't lead you here. God is the one. 
who you are angry with. Then pick it up. But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? In other words, why did you pull us out here to kill us? And Moses then cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, that tells you the intensity of the anger that the people were feeling toward Moses. You might not get that if Moses hadn't went on and said to God, look, God, this thing's getting out of control. These people are getting ready to stone me. Then the Lord answered Moses, walk ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribeth because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, although the people picks a a fight with Moses, their their real argument is with God. That's why Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why, Why do you put the Lord to the test? Moses was in a position of divinely appointed spiritual authority. No question. He had led Israel to Rephidim, not because he knew there was water there. But he led them there because God told him to go there. So the problem here is God, not Moses. Therefore, the people could not reject him without also rebelling against God. And what they were really doing was putting God to the test. This is confirmed by the psalmist in Psalm uh, 95 and 7. Where the writer says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribeth, as you did that day in in Massa, in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. Now, this thing is a big issue with God because you'll find him referring to it over and over again throughout the rest of the New Testament. In fact, you'll find it again in Hebrews. This idea of challenging God and testing God was a big deal. What does it mean to test God? In verse 7 of this Exodus text, you'd almost get the impression that testing God was in the question. Is the Lord among us or not? The way you read that, if you read that quickly, you'd almost say, man, they tested God Simply by saying, is the Lord with us or not? No, the the problem wasn't the question. The problem was the answer. The testing of God is not in the question, but in the answer. Does God have to do something to prove he is with us? 
has God got to make some kind of manifestation in order to prove he is with us? And God don't like that. Because now you're forcing him to act in a way that's not consistent with what he's trying to do. Israel was saying, if God, in order for me to believe that God is really present, he's got to show it by making water materialize. In other words, I want to force God to show himself in a way that I have determined to be satisfactory to me as concrete proof that he is present or not. In essence, to make one's belief in God contingent upon such a demonstration is to turn faith to sight and to force God, to force God's hand by making him demonstrate his presence and power. You see, the question to ask ourselves in in, in this moment is, do I do that? Do I try to force God to do something to prove that he is God? To prove that he is with me? To prove that he loves me? Do I do that? Do I put God to the test and demand that he prove he is who he is? To prove he's heard my prayers. Do I demand of God some kind of manifestation. Jesus had a similar situation in the Gospels. In Matthew 4, you remember that story? The devil's taking him out and he's, he's facing, having this conversation. You get to the second temptation. And the verse says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responded by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not try and force God to act at your demands. The devil was saying to Jesus, if you do something sensational, the people will believe you are the son of God. Float down. Prove God's word to be true by forcing God's hand. He's not going to let you hurt your foot. Jump on out there and let the world see and let God demonstrate himself. If Jesus was in trouble, God will save you. But Jesus knew two things. First, he knew that we accept God's promises by faith without requiring a sign. He was not about to bow to Satan's temptation to manipulate a situation in an attempt to force God to fulfill his promises is nothing short of evil. The second thing Jesus knew is he knew that God expects a man to take risks in order to be true to God. But he does not expect him to take risks to enhance his own prestige. And Jesus knew that that won't do. I was reading not too long ago about a guy down in the south somewhere who handled snakes. And in church they proved that God was present by picking up snakes. And the snake 
would either bite them and nothing happened, or they held it in such a way it didn't bite them. Well, this guy, the snake bit him, and he died. He died right there on the platform. The bill fell out dead. And the article said it did nothing to influence the thinking of those people at all. I would have been making a beeline out of that door rather standing around watching for a snake to come. We cannot force God to act in accordance with our desires. Amen. Amen. The very faith which is dependent on signs and wonders is not faith. If faith cannot believe without something sensational, that's not really faith. That's doubt looking for proof. But those who trust in God don't need to test him. Amen. So then when, when, when are we most tempted to test God. I I think our, our greatest temptation to test God comes when doubt and fear overtake us and we reach the conclusion that God is not going to meet my expectations. And I think when we get to that point, that's when we're most tempted to test God. I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Sheila Walsh. She used to be on the 700 Club. And she, she wrote in her book this little bit I'm going to show with, share with you. She said, I, I think our paradigm of what Christian life is supposed to be affects whether we become bitter or not. And so many of the people I work with are, are dealing with disappointment. Disappointment with themselves, disappointment with other people, disappointment with God because he doesn't do what we think he's going to do. She says, I got the most interesting letter from a young woman in her mid-20s who had cancer and MS. She said in her letter, Sometimes I watch your program and I'm helped. And sometimes I want to take my shoe off and throw it at you through the screen. She said, I was so fascinated by her honesty that I called her. And she said, when I called her, she said to me, one of the things I hate what you do is to always present people whose marriages get better in 10 minutes People who get healed instantly and people who have nice packaged answers. She said, what about people like me who are dying and still love God? What about people who take few steps because every step leaves a big impression in the snow because it costs every ounce of strength they have left to get there? She changed her perspective, Sheila said. I changed my perspective because Christianity is not this nice, everything's going to work out okay attitude. When you think of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept because it wasn't supposed to be like this. 
He had spoken into, into being a beautiful world and it was now broken and messed up. Death has come and friends are dying. And Jesus is weeping saying, it's not supposed to be like this. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give is just a dose of reality. Like life down here is disappointing. That God doesn't always give us answers, but he always gives us himself. And from God's perspective, that's sufficient. That's enough. That'll get you through. We may never say it out loud, but we expect that if we do the right thing and, and live a good life, as we should, that we'll have great marriages and healthy bank balances and well-balanced children and a life free from major problems. No, we won't say it, but we think it. And even though we know better, we still live on the side of expecting blessings for obedience. And when God doesn't meet those expectations, we get ticked with God. Has anybody in here ever gotten ticked with God? Am I the only one that's gotten ticked with God? John the Baptist had this problem. When he expected Jesus to pick up where he left off, he had preached that Jesus was the one. He expected him to be a Messiah who would demonstrate power and justice, that he'd help free the people from Roman oppression. But instead, Jesus preached. He preached and showed acts of mercy. John was ticked. And he sent a message to Jesus asking, are you the one? I'm not sure now. Are you the one or should I be looking for another? And you can add to that that there's no record in scripture that Jesus even visited John while he was in prison. No wonder John was saying, are you the one? Or do I look for somebody else? Jesus was not meeting John's expectation. Sometimes even when our expectations are biblical, our timing is off. God has this universal time clock around which he functions. It tends not to be consistent with my watch. Did you get that? It just don't, we're on different time zones. Even though what I'm expecting from him is biblical, and I have every right to expect it, God says, yes, that's what I want, but not now, but not yet. I wonder if those times we are most disappointed with God isn't because he failed us, but our expectation of God failed us. It's what we expected him to do when we expected him to do it that has failed us. We just sometimes don't see the big picture. Sometimes we just can't embrace 
that we have limitations in our understandings of God's limitlessness. I wonder if our response would be different. If our inability to understand what God is doing gave us cause for worship rather than cause for doubt. I wonder if our recognition that God is too big, he's too great, he's too powerful, he's too all-knowing. I can't understand what he's doing. I, I can't see what he's doing there. There's too much I don't understand. There's, there's too much at play. I don't know what he's doing. I wonder if that would be sufficient to cause us to worship God rather than to cause us to doubt God and to realize that he's stronger and greater than we are. And so my conclusion this morning is this. Don't, don't test him. Trust him. Don't test him. Trust him. One thing about God, you can be very sure. God does not play favorites. He doesn't randomly or purposefully reward the, or, or punish people from, from some master control panel that's not consistent with the biblical revelation. No, no, that's not God's style. Jesus said that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So he doesn't have favorites. And if he does have favorites, We're all included in those favorites because God is like a loving father, mother who loves all of his children fully and equally yearning for fellowship with every single one that's been made in the image and likeness of God. Nothing we can do can make God love us more and nothing we can do will make God love us less. It is the surety of God's love and acceptance that gives us a basis for our trust. In life and in death, we belong to God. God is at work in all of life, in the good and in the bad. God is there working out his purpose. Nothing in life or creation is outside of God's care and concern of his people. It is the very nature of God's beautiful and self-sustaining creation for his living creatures to be born, to grow, to change, and to die. And we're going to go through all of those processes and it changes nothing as far as God's love and commitment to us. Amen. Amen. The ancient psalmist put it this way, O Lord, our Lord. How exalted is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, you set them their courses. What are human beings that you should be mindful of them? Mortals that you should seek them out. It's fascinating. Look at the mountains and then look at you. Look at the ocean, then look at you. Look at the canyons and then look at you. See how small you are. See how great God's creation is. You have to say, God, do you really care about little old me? When I look at this place, look at how many other people there are on this planet. 
And to think that no matter how many there are, God still knows you, knows your name, knows where you live, knows how many hairs on your head, still concerned and committed to you. And evil will always be present. For God does not remove suffering and evil from this world. It's here. In fact, you find evil when the story begins in Genesis. It never tells us where the serpent comes from, never tells us how he got there. He's just there. And evil is just here. And it's going to be here. Our triumph is in Jesus Christ, who in the presence of evil has demonstrated us that the people of God will triumph. Amen and amen. Two men set out on a journey. They took a donkey to carry their packs. They took a torch to provide them light in the night. And they took a rooster who was a friend of the donkey. One man was religious. The other was a skeptic. Along the way, the religious man talked often to his skeptic friend about God. The other man who was not a believer said, we will see if your opinion about God bears out on this trip. First night they came to the village, but no one would take them in. So they had to sleep a mile outside of town. I thought you said God is good, the skeptic said. And God has decided that this is the best place for us tonight, said the man of faith, outside the village. They were bedding down for the night when they heard a roar and a horrible noise. A lion had killed the donkey, carried it away to eat. The skeptic said, you see, you still say God is good. And the man of faith said, if the lion hadn't eaten the donkey, he would have eaten us. God is good. Moments later, they heard the rooster cry out. The man scurried up a tree only to see a wild cat with the chicken in its mouth. Now... What do you say about your God, said the skeptic, to which the man of faith replied, the cry of the rooster has once again saved us. God is good. A few minutes later, a strong wind blew up and extinguished the torch, leaving the men in darkness. The skeptic taunted the man of faith again. It appears that your goodness of your God is working overtime. To which the man of faith had no response. The next morning, the two men walked back into the village. They soon discovered that a large band of outlaws had swept down into the town during the night. And had robbed the entire community of all of its possessions. With this news, the man of faith turned to his friend. Ah, it's clear to me now. He says, what do you mean? 
Had we been given a room in the village last night, we would have been robbed with all of the rest of the people. If the wind had not blown out our torch, the bandits would have discovered us too and robbed us as well. It is evident that in all things, God is good. So in all of life, magnificent as it is, for in every moment in our joys, in our sorrows, in our life, in our death, we belong to God. And you don't have to test him. All you have to do is trust him. You don't have to try to press God, force God, try to manipulate God. All you have to do is rest in God. He's got you in the hollow of his hands. When a miracle is needed, he will give you one. When a test is needed, he will give you one. When patience is needed, he will give you what is needed to grow patience. When confidence is needed, he will give you what you need to grow confident. You see, God has you in the hollow of his hand. Nothing's coming in there without his permission. Everything is under his control. You don't have to try to manipulate him. You just need to rest in his arms and know that he is God. Hallelujah. 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 What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God he is in our lives. Our Father, give to us today the confidence to just trust you. Forgive us when we try to manipulate you. For when we try to manipulate you, it shows that we're not trusting you. Give us confidence. Increase our faith. Help us to rest in your love and to celebrate your goodness. For those today who are in this place struggling with what's going on in their lives. May this word encourage their hearts today that they don't have to be fearful, but they can rest in God. We thank you for all that you are and all that you've done, and we give glory and honor and praise to your matchless name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us for this installment of Renewing Your Mind, a web-based ministry of South Bay Community Church, located at 47385 Warm Springs Boulevard, Fremont, California. We can be found on the web at www.sobcc.org. We'd like to take a moment to invite you to come and join us in person for one of our dynamic Sunday morning worship services. Services begin at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. each Sunday, and we would be so blessed to have you come worship with us. 
We'd also love to hear from you a word about how this ministry is helping you renew your mind for the glory of Jesus Christ. So please contact us, and we pray God's blessings over you the rest of this day. God bless.